We approach a psalm this day, another psalm of David, and David is in a cave and running from his son. David has seen this wilderness in the past, as we know that he has fled from Saul, someone he trusted in years prior in his life, and here he finds himself on the run yet again. And on the run, he is wandering and wandering and searching. And he writes Psalm 62. And his hope is in the Lord. May we put our hope and trust in the Lord this day. Let's rise and hear the reading of God's Word. Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? The only plan to, to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in his falsehood. They bless with their mouths and inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balance they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. So far, the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for this, Your Word. And again, You have promised where the, that the grass will wither and the flower will fade, but this, Your Word, will stand firm. It will stand true. Not only today and tomorrow, but forever to the end of time. And so, Lord, we pray that You would send the Holy Spirit. Guide my words. Carry them to those people gathered here today. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, who lives forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Trust. Why is it so hard to trust? There are so many factors that, that play into that question and that answer that today I wouldn't have all the time all week to really delve into the necessary details of answer that question. However, suffice to say, it's, it's hard to trust because we've been betrayed. It's hard to trust because on some level, each and every one of us on some part of our lives has been betrayed. And frankly and honestly, when that happens... It hurts. And so when we're hurt, what do we tend to do? We tend to run away. We don't like to get hurt. The other day I was had a fire in my back. Yesterday I had a fire burning some old things. And like a dummy, I reached in and tried to grab a stick to move things around. And I didn't realize it was that hot. And I still have a blister to prove that you play with fire and it hurts. It's burned. I don't like it. And so you splinch away. This is what happens when we trust someone, something, somebody, and they betray us. We're left with blisters, aren't we? It hurts. And so we do all we can to run from the pain. And so then we pick and choose. 
We pick and choose the best that we can to, to try and eliminate that pain. I saw a t-shirt that w- this week that I thought was kind of funny. It says this, I like baseball and whiskey and three people. That's pretty fitting for most of us, isn't it? Baseball is timeless and it gets better with age, it seems, and frankly, so does whiskey. And for many of us, three people is about the extent of our circle that we really truly entrust. Maybe perhaps outside of our immediate family. It's really hard to trust, isn't it? In the 5th century after Christ, the the Roman Empire was crumbling. A bishop in North Africa saw that trust in the empire and the established church was, was broken. In the year 410, Rome was attacked by the Visigoths. Something that happened, haven't, hasn't happened in 800 years. The people lost their trust in the imperial government and the Roman legions. They needed something they could hold on to in the midst of change. They needed something to trust. Augustine, St. Augustine, told them to trust God. He wrote this prayer. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Opening paragraph in St. Augustine's Confessions. In the 16th century, Martin Luther found himself excommunicated from the church he loved and he was hunted by people who wanted him dead. The Protestant Reformation had turned violent. Facing death, Luther realized the only thing he could trust was God. He said these words, Faith is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God, so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. This kind of confidence in God's grace, this sort of knowledge, makes us joyful, makes us high-spirited and eager in our relations with all mankind. These are Luther's words in his preface in his commentary to Romans. And then later that century, John Calvin said these words, Piety is that reverence joined with the love of God which the knowledge of His benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by His fatherly care, that He is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond Him, they will never yield Him willing service. Paragraph 1 of Calvin's Institutes. For both Luther and Calvin, faith or piety deals with an orientation to God. What's important is not what do you believe. What's important, however, is who do you trust? Faith is what allows us to put our trust in God. And in the 19th century, America was in the grips of civil war. Brother was fighting brother. And it was hard to know who to trust. In 1861, the Reverend Watkinson wanted the nation to be reminded that ultimately the only person we can trust is God. And so he wrote a letter to the Treasury Department asking and pleading the, the, the National Treasury Department to do something. Who is it that we trust? Who can we trust? And he says these words in that letter, Almighty God in some form on our coins, please. In 1863, the motto in God we trust is now stamped and has been since that day on our coins. And then in 1956, the House of Representatives affirmed in God we trust as the model of the United States in a resolution which passed 396 to 9. And then theologian Jürgen Moltmann has said, Fish need water in which to swim. Birds need air in which to fly. And we human beings need trust in order to develop humanity. 
Trust is the basic element in which human life exists. Trust is always a mutual affair. And this is true of our trust in God because He trusts us. He says that and control is good. So whenever there seems to be nothing we can trust, we can always trust God. David realized that. David realized that no, no matter where he was, there was nothing and no one on earth that he could trust more. There was only one thing. One person who could always be trusted. And that was God. As the army of Absalom came closer to Jerusalem, David realized that the city walls he had once trusted in, the throne room that he once trusted in, his armies, his legions, his mighty men that he once trusted in, had no longer any impact or protection for him. He realized that these city walls, this fortress, would be a prison to him. So David fled. David fled into the wilderness of Jerusalem. And he writes Psalm 62. He wrote Psalm 62 when there was no fortress around him. He wrote Psalm 62 when there was no strong tower. He wrote Psalm 62 when there was no city wall to protect him. He had nothing but a wilderness between him and his enemy. What David declares in this glorious psalm is a complete unwavering security that is found in the Lord and the Lord alone. What makes trust so hard? Trust is hard because we realize that we place our trust in so many things. And each one of those things has or will fail us. What makes this psalm such a wonderful song of praise? is because it acknowledges this reality. It acknowledges the reality and the conviction that, that we don't place our trust in the Lord. It acknowledges the reality and the conviction that we need to place our trust in the Lord. And this psalm calls us back into the right relationship with the Lord. Really what David is doing here is giving us a heart check, a life check, a soul check. Where is your trust? Where is my trust this morning? Is it in the Lord? Is it in the Lord because He is our rock? He is our salvation. He is the one and only thing that cannot be shaken in our lives. We may not be kings of Israel or former kings of Israel. We may not have fortresses and city walls around us to protect us. But we still have walls. We have carefully constructed walls. We have carefully constructed things in our life to make sure that we don't get hurt to protect ourselves from pain and sorrow. But what this psalm is telling us is that these two will ultimately crumble and fail us. The walls that we construct to protect the things that we hold dear crumble. Sometimes they crumble bit by bit and piece by piece, but other times they just shatter all at once and come crashing down. And then we're left exposed disheartened, in pain. However, if we turn and we see, if we turn and look and see the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord in our lives, we're able to see just how God has taken us through each and every time when these things have failed us. 
He has always been there. He always will be there. And He promises to never leave us. If we turn and look, we do see the steadfast love of the Lord. We see His faithfulness of the Lord in our lives. But perhaps you're a bit like me. That as you turn and look over your shoulder, and you are really trying to find and see the fact that the Lord has been faithful, you don't always see that, do you? Sometimes I don't always see that. Where my heart goes is the fact that I have not been faithful to Him. And I run after everything that's shiny and bright and new. But then the shame and the guilt kick in. For I know I should be trusting the Lord. I know that He is my rock and my salvation, and yet I try to find foundation in other things. So why don't I trust God in everything I do? Why do I look to my control and my power? Why do I look to my pride and my ability? Why do I look to to everything other than the Lord when all I need to do is to look behind me and see the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord? This is where David finds himself as he pens Psalm 62. Looking to see and when and how the Lord has been faithful. And David does see the faithfulness of the Lord. And this is what gives him courage and strength to leave the comfort and the security of the things of man and the world. And flee into the wilderness where there is no fortress. Where there is no security blanket. And all he has is his God. For you see, David does say over and over again, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. And because He is the rock of our lives, we can not only look behind us, but we look to today and we look to tomorrow. So in very easy and simple terms, because the Lord is our rock, because He is the rock of our lives, we put our trust in Him in all things. Not in the easy things, not only in the hard things, for both the hard and the easy and everything in between. So I want to break down this psalm in a few sections for us to answer some of the questions that David has in this psalm. The thrust of the psalm is just what I said. God is our rock. God is our salvation. And we're told specifically, very specifically, in verse 8 that we're supposed to trust Him and Him alone in all things. And here is the emotion of David coming out again. He says, Put your trust in the Lord. Do you see that in verse 8? Pour out your heart to Him. Leave nothing to chance. Leave, leave no part unchecked, but pour out yourself to the Lord. Why? Because He is your refuge. When everything else is crumbling, when everything else is going bad, He is the one place that you can run to and find refuge, find peace, find rest. And so I want to break it down in these ways. Where and how are we to trust the Lord? Verses 1-4 to four to tell us to trust the Lord alone as the rock of our lives in the stress of life. 5-8 to eight tells us to trust the, the Lord as the rock of our life in the, in the silence of life. And then he concludes in 9-12 to 12, to trust the Lord in the steadfastness of life. So let's look at these very brief and broad outline of Psalm 62 as I've put before you here this morning. 
As I briefly said, David is writing this psalm from, from the wilderness as he is pursued by his own son who is doing everything in his power to not just overthrow David, but to kill him. In the very first verse, the sentiment of the psalm is laid before us. David has nothing. He left everything. He is literally in caves running for his life again from someone whom he trusted, his own son. But he has failed him. His life has been torn into pieces. His comfort, his control, his prosperity, his security, everything that the king is supposed to have, he no longer had. He is being hunted by his enemies. And he wonders aloud, how long will all of you attack me? When is enough enough? Can't you see that I'm battered? I'm an old man. Can't you see that I'm weary? Can't you see I'm exhausted from the struggle? And I love the illustration that he, feel, that he uses. He says he feels like a teetering fence. <laughs> we all know what that looks like. The wood is weather-worn, right? There is most likely slats missing, missing from sections of the fence. Many of the nails are either rusted or perhaps even gone. Some of them may be Halfway out, three quarters of the way out, they're long rotted. One little nudge of this fence and the whole thing will just fall. I like the illustration because there are so many times the stress of life makes us feel exactly the same way. We may not be fleeing from one of our children for the sake of our lives. At least I hope not. And if you are, I'd love to talk with you. But that doesn't take away from the pressures and the stresses of our life, does it? Because there are many times when we feel like we are on the run for our lives. There are times when the weather of life has us feeling, yes, discolored. Perhaps feeling like some of the nails have popped out or falling out. Perhaps one more nudge from life and we'll just fall over. This is what good illustrations do. Each of us knows these moments in life, don't we? However, nearly in the same breath, he says that he is not greatly shaken. He feels like a teetering fence. And he also says, yet I am not greatly shaken. Although it's a teetering fence, he feels solid, firm in his convictions of who he is and what he has He is not greatly shaken because the Lord is His rock and His salvation. In the moment of distress, where often do we turn? How am I going to get myself out of this situation? What do I do now? How do I get there? Who do I call to make things happen so bad things don't happen? This is what we do, isn't it? But here David says, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. What does it mean for us to call the Lord our rock? You see, because the refrain here in Psalm 62 is just that over and over again. The rock, the rock, the rock of my salvation. The rock. There's an obvious answer when we talk about the Lord being our rock. It's pretty simple. I don't, it doesn't need a lot of explanation as to understand the illustration of the Lord being our rock. He's solid. He's secure. He's steadfast. He's something that we can place our anchor into. It won't move. He's never going to leave Rocks don't just get up and move somewhere. 
He is our rock. He is solid. He is firm. But David says he's my rock and he says he's something else. He is my rock and he is my salvation. Upon first glance and upon first reading, we may say, okay, well, he's talking about two different things. He's talking about the security and the steadfast love of the Lord as a rock. But then he's talking about how the Lord is his salvation, his redeemer, his his life. But as Old Testament people, they recognize that it's not two separate things. It's one and the same thing. If you were to turn into uh, Exodus 17, you would see an interesting story. If you recall your Exodus history and, and that story, you remember that the people of God have been taken up out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness and they're wandering and they're beginning to grumble and complain. We don't like the manna. We taught. We should have just stayed in Egypt where we had three meals a day or whatever it was. Just complain, 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 complain. Then they run out of water. You're in the wilderness and you have no water. I would complain too. I'm just going to be straight honest with you. I would complain. I would complain to my leader, where is the water? My family's going to die if you don't get me water. Where are we going to go? And so they continue on and the Lord tells them to walk. And He tells them to walk to a place called Rephidim where there's supposed to be water. We're supposed to be an oasis, but they arrive in Rephidim and there is no water. And they get even more upset with Mo. Where is the water? Where are you taking us? Where is the Lord taking us? And they get upset and they get upset. And so then Moses turns to the Lord and says, what are we going to do? What am I supposed to do with these, your people? What happens now, Lord? And so do you remember what the Lord says? He looks at a rock and he tells Moses to, to strike the rock. And what comes out? Water. Water comes out of a rock where there is no water to be come from. But here the Lord is this miracle out of the rock, out of this security, out of the steadfastness of the Lord, out of His provision comes living water for the entire people. So when the people of the Old Testament and David calls the Lord His rock and His salvation, he remembers this story in the wilderness where God's people relied and trusted in a rock and out of it came living water. So He is their rock and He is their salvation both and at the same time. And so David, or David says, Lord, You are my rock. You are my salvation. You are my God. Be that same God to me as You were to them. I need You and I need You now. So that's what it means to call the Lord our rock. It means my Savior, my refresher, my restorer, my deliverer. You could almost say that the rock is the Old Testament name for Jesus. And if you say, Ryan, that might be a stretch. I don't think so. Because we turn to 1 Corinthians 10, if you were to go there, 1-4. to Paul says these things to the church at Corinth. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Same story, mind you, right? Remember. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from where? They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. 
To speak of the Lord as my rock is to refer to the life-giving, smitten rock of Exodus 17. Who is Jesus Christ our Lord? So David is looking towards Jesus and he says, Be my Savior. Be my God. Be who you say you are. Give me life. Give me refreshment. Renew me in a dry and barren world. In the stress of life, Call on the rock. Call on your Savior. Trust in Jesus. The life that fills our barren lives is the same rock of salvation that meets us in the place where so many of us dare not tread. That of silence. The silence, however, is what David has to keep him company. It is these moments when David sees his his rock more clearly than ever David also understands Psalm 46 that when we are still and we rest upon the rock, it's there and then we understand that He is our God. We recognize in the deep caverns of our lives that we can only be quenched by the rock of His grace. And here in Psalm 62, when the world is crashing down about Him, David in the silence is where he praises the Lord. However, in our busy lives, we are either too busy to find the silence or we're too frightened by the deafening sound of silence as Simon and Carfunkel so aptly coined. For it is often in the silence where we rehash the things that we've done and and left undone, isn't it? It's in the silence where hurts and pains often creep slowly and steadily into our thoughts and into our brains. But here, David, in the silence, in the silence, hopes in the rock of his salvation. Not in his thoughts or in his actions or lack thereof. His thoughts turn to the times when the Lord has indeed been his salvation. When the Lord conquered his enemies and brought him back to himself, we find restlessness in the silence. David finds praise. And David pleads in verse 7 with the reader, the singer, to to find rest in the silence, to find rest in the rock of his salvation. Do you see that in verse 7? On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock is in refuge of God. This is where he finds himself. In Matthew 11, Jesus yearns with those who have seen his miracles. They've seen all the things that he's done and And still that they do not repent of the things that have caused them brokenness and ways of damnation. He is pleading with those who remain restless, trying to find a way in the silence of their lives to to come to, 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 to find rest and peace in Him. And He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. David looks again to the rock of his salvation, to Jesus as his rest, the only one who can give true rest. David's not looking for his feet to be propped up and have an umbrella drink in his hand. He's looking for the only kind of rest that he can think of in this moment. The only kind of rest that he truly desires. He's looking for his soul in the silence to hear the still small voice. To hear the voice that says, come to me and I will give you rest. The one that says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's nothing more for you to accomplish. 
It is finished. Everything you need is found in the silent embrace of the outstretched arms of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the silence of knowing God. Knowing Jesus as the one who took your burden and removes the turmoil of sin and brokenness, this is the rest that we so desperately crave and need. Trust in Him at all times is what David tells us. Pour out your heart to Him. Pour out your anxieties. Cast your anxieties as we see in First Peter on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. So in the silence, cast your cares, cast your fears upon the rock of your salvation who promises to quench your thirst and to give you rest because He is our refuge. And so out of then the silence, the silence of the middle part of, of this psalm, the silence is broken. It's broken in the concluding verses of the psalm where David says, once God has spoken, we understand something here. He says, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him and God is your refuge. And then he makes this transition. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up and they are together lighter than a breath. And jump back down here in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, the power belongs to God. So God breaks this silence to reveal His power, to reveal Himself, to reveal everything that we need. Or David says, once God has done this, we understand something truly remarkable. We understand this steadfast love and faithfulness, not of ourselves, not of our neighbors, not of our pastors, not of our politicians, not of the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord. This then is a psalm of praise for David sees that indeed the Lord has never left him even in the stress and in the silence. The Lord remains steadfast. And the word of the Lord shatters all else. For it is the word of the Lord that always breaks the silence, isn't it? It's the word of the Lord that broke the silence in creation when there was nothing. The word of the Lord caused things to exist. It's why we do in our worship service every single week where we take a moment to lay down the cares of the week and the stresses of the week to find that place. And in that silence, and out of that silence, the Lord calls us to worship. That same voice breaks through the silence, breaks through the noise, and beckons you to Himself. And David is, this is what David is recognizing here in this psalm. I need this, Lord. For it is the Word of the Lord that illuminates the power of the Lord. This is a psalm of praise because there is a constant refrain throughout this psalm. Do you see this refrain? It's in verse 1. It's in verse 2. It's in verse 6. And it's in verse 7. The refrain is that the Lord and nothing else is His salvation. I don't do this very often. But there are moments when the call to action is very clear. This is a psalm that makes this very clear. There's one question and one question alone that I have for you today. Where is your trust?
Where's your trust? Who do you trust in? Maybe for many of us, the better question is, what do you trust? Honestly, ask ourselves the question, what do I trust in? My retirement fund? My bank account now? Do I trust in governments? Do I trust in my employer or my customers? Do I trust in my own ability? Who do you trust? This is the central question of Psalm 62. And friends, as blatantly and transparently as, as transparent as I can possibly say it, Place your trust in God alone. For if we place our trust in anything other than that, we are headed in a path that will meet your demise. Friends, this is a serious business, this thing called trust. Where is your trust this morning? The call is simple. The command is clear. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you place your trust in anything other than the rock of your salvation, you will find an empty well. You will find a cold, hard rock that does not care. And you indeed are a teetering fence that will and can be shaken. David trusted God. He was restored as the king of Israel. Absalom failed. Augustine trusted God and guided the people of God as the Roman Empire fell. Luther and Calvin trusted God and led their churches through religious wars that followed the Protestant Reformation. So I urge you, I don't give you those things as high pedestals. Be like Luther. Be like Augustine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is how we can look back. We can turn around and we can see this is how God was faithful to David. This is how God was faithful to Martin and to John. This is how He's faithful to you. Look back in your life and see how it is that He has been steadfast and His faithfulness to you so that we aren't burned. We will not be burned because He is our rock and our salvation. Put your trust in only God. Pour out your hearts to Him. Lay everything at the throne. Rest in His arms. Count on His protection. Allow God to provide you His security, His stability. Remember that God is all-powerful, but He's not distant. God is faithful. God's love is steadfast. God is a rock you can stand on. God is our only source of hope and grace. Why? Because the rock was struck on the cross and out flowed living water. For your hurts, for your brokenness, for your lives. 
And so this is a psalm of praise because we look to that rock and that salvation to recognize this is what Jesus has done for me. This is who Jesus is for me. This is cause to celebrate. This is cause to worship. Friends, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrate His goodness. Celebrate what He has accomplished for you. You can always trust the Lord. For He is the rock of our lives. And He is our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank You for this, Your Word. We thank You that You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. We thank You that You have poured out Your life so that we could have life. We give You praise. We celebrate who You are and what You've done. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.